On May 8, 1866, with the Civil War over, supporters of the women's suffrage movement gathered at Union Square in Manhattan to help refocus the nation's goal on extending the vote to women. Elizabeth Cady Stanton spoke, among more, among others. Now in the, is the reconstruction. Now in the reconstruction is opportunity, perhaps of the century, to base our government on the broad principle of equal rights for all. Later that same morning, the lone black woman in the speaker's assembly rose from her seat on the stage and took the podium. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper held her moment and admonished the people so gathered, clarified that what needed to also happen in this work of the vote and equal rights was for the country to be able to treat everybody equally as well, including Regard, including around concerns of color. She said, you white women speak here of rights. I speak of wrongs. As we heard from Theodore Parker about that arc of that universe, Part of our task is to recover and restore and refresh those who have been bending and those who still need to be with us as we continue our part of that work. And we have a moment for that today to bring Frances Harper into the present that she may not simply have been part of the past because she also she didn't just challenge the people of her time. Can you imagine the wherewithal it took to get up in front of all those white women just after the Civil War is over and to say, I'm speaking of wrongs and I'm calling you out on that. But she did what she had been doing her entire adult life, speaking and speaking and bringing that forth. And so she continues to challenge us today as well as a people of faith, as much as she did in her time around race and gender and class and voting and what the church says and what the church does. Frances Harper, born Watkins, was born in Maryland in 1825 to free black parents and she had, after the terrible, unfortunate early death of her family, she had a remarkable opportunity to be educated at her uncle's school and then go on to work as a domestic in a Quaker family. And that Quaker family had an extensive library, and she did not simply work for them. She was welcome to read anything she wanted. And she did. And with that initiative that seemed both cultivated and, I think, natural to her. She wrote and published, as we said, poetry by the time she was 20. The world around her, of course, kept 
evolving. So while Maryland had been home, that was no longer a place of safety. And she settled in Ohio and then, as we heard, in Pennsylvania and started to travel to speak against slavery. And Frances, Frances was a novelty for this time, this free black woman traveling by herself in a time when, when women speaking in public was frowned on, she succeeded and went forth and offered her presence and her oratory and speaking directly about the hardships of enslavement and also the hardships of women. As we heard in that poem, Bury Me in a Free Land. She was also an excellent business person as well. She knew the value and the worth of having her books be available for sale at her appearances, for offering ways that people could buy a little bit of a, a bit of poetry or a bit of a reading or so on. And while speaking in Ohio, she met the man who became her husband, Fenton Harper. He was a widower with three children. And they married in 1860. And she used her money to help buy a farm and settle in with the family to help raise the three children from his previous marriage and to welcome a baby, a baby of their own. But sadly, four years after they married, he died, leaving her with a mountain of debt of which she was unaware. And the creditors came and took everything. And she said, in her address in 1866, she describes it this way. She said, my, my husband died suddenly, leaving me a widow with four children, one of my own and the other's stepchildren. She said, I tried to keep the children together, but my husband died in debt. And before he had been in his grave three months, the administrators came had swept the very milk crocks and wash tubs from my hands. I was a farmer's wife and made butter for the market, but what could I do when they had swept it all away? They left me with one thing, a looking glass. She said, had I died instead of my husband, how different would be the result? By this time, he would have had another wife. It is likely, and no administrator would have gone to his house, broken up his home, sold his bed, and taken away his means of support. If she had been a man, she would have married again and received the grace to continue to manage her debts. But as a woman, she had no protection. As she said, justice is not fulfilled so long as women is unequal before the law. And that led her to further pursue rights for women. And so with baby in tow, she resumed speaking the job she could do as well as was called to do in order to support herself. And after the end of the Civil War, she turned back to the, turned to the right to vote along with the empowerment of women, along with the empowerment of black women. I want to offer an excerpt from her speech in 1866 where she was up there speaking with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and more. And she says, she just lays it out. We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity and society cannot 
trample on the weakest and feeblest members um, without receiving a curse on its own soul. You, she said, you tried that in the case of the Negro. You pressed him down for two centuries, and in so doing, you crippled the moral strength and paralyzed the spiritual energies of the white men of the country. When the hands of the black are fettered, white men were deprived of the liberty of speech and the freedom of the press. Society cannot afford to neglect the enlightenment of any class of its members. She goes on to say, I do not believe that giving women the ballot is immediately going to cure all the ills of life. I do not believe that white women are dewdrops just exhaled from the skies. You can imagine that moment there, right? Wait a minute. The purity of white women called into question, my goodness. Mm-hmm. She said, I think that like men, they may be divided into classes, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. You white people, white women speak here of rights. I speak of wrongs. I, as a colored woman, have had in this country an education which has made me feel like I were in the situation of Ishmael. My hand against every man and every hand, man's hand against me. Let me go tomorrow morning and take my seat in one of your streetcars in New York, and the conductor will put up his hand and stop the car rather than let me ride. And she's more specifically calls out the white women because Harper really understood their social power and influence. She said, talk of giving women the ballot box? Go on. It is a normal school and the white women of this country need it. While there exists this brutal element in society which tramples upon the feeble and treads down the weak, I tell you, that if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it is the white women of America. Yes, she offered that message in front of two of the most noted white suffragists in history. And she was fearless and clear in her path. But I want to pause for a moment here. Does this sound familiar? The challenge and the accountability and the responsibility being offered up to say, how are you doing? with this measure as well. How is any one of us meeting that challenge? Where does what she, say, what she says land 150 years later? More. How would we measure today against that day? Now, Frances Harper, 
did not remain in the relative safety of the North in her effort. She, in fact, went south. She, in fact, went south while the Ku Klux Klan is forming, while people are destroying the lives of African Americans in an, in an effort to exert power and control and take away wealth and take away the functionalness of any vote, whatever had been granted. And yet, and there she was, going as deep as she could to speak to the people, especially women, especially women who had been enslaved, who had been emancipated, but still lived, most of them, in the same shacks in which they had been enslaved. And remarkably, remarkably, she was able to do this traveling and this speaking and not know harm. In the last half of the 1800s, she navigates the efforts to uh, participate in securing the, the 15th Amendment that ensures the vote for black men. But she also, this was a major split in the efforts of the time for the suffragettes and uh, advocates for the vote. Harper, in this moment, she does not begrudge the men who got the vote before the black women because she understands the value, for her, she understands the value of the vote. And she simply continues to work for the rights for all women because she understands the level of injustice in, the, in our society based on gender, and she understands the value of the vote. She has a poem that's out there where she um, criticizes, she belittles uh, a man for selling his vote for the sake of some food. For Harper, the vote is too precious, even if it means to fill an empty stomach. She doesn't let anyone off the hook, and she is still able to speak and be heard. In our time, we use the word intersectionality uh, thanks to Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who first coined it in 1989. Inter intersectionality speaks to the overlapping experience of gender and race and class and more marginalized uh, identities that cannot be separated from one another. Our identity and our location are deeply and thoroughly intertwined. Frances Harper spoke to it from the various, various early days of her life. Her experience of injustice as a woman, as an African-American in the United States, in levels of both wealth and poverty, fighting for a voice and a vote. And bound up, she saw this, bound up with politics and power and access and religion among so many forces. But I want to offer that Harper does not let the church off the hook either, which is the last takeaway for this moment. In that time, as in many ways our time, but certainly in that time more than, uh, more than now, 
social justice and religion were not separate conversations. As she heard in the words from her 1866 speech, she is calling on the moral and spiritual health of the society. The moral call was a Christian call. She learned about faith as an early age and as an adult in her AME congregation and then later in the Unitarian congregations. She was a member in Philadelphia and she participated in both worlds. She knew both worlds well, the black church and the white church. At the time, the Bible was used to defend the enslavement of people and justify the subservience of others to whites. Frances Harper brought this out in her novel from 1892. Kenny Wiley from the writer in the UU world talks about this, that Harper's 1892 art, um, novel, Iola Leroy, or Shadows Uplifted, which may have been the best-selling novel by an African-American before the 20th century, explores the black title character's decision to forego passing as white and work to fight to end slavery and obtain civil rights. Through Harper's characters, Ayola Leroy issues the call for religious persons to struggle, to join the struggle for freedom. And Ayola asks her mother in the novel, are these people Christians who made the laws which are reducing us to slavery? If this is Christianity, I hate and despise it. Iola's mother responds, I have not learned Christianity from them. I have learned it at the foot of the cross and from the New Testament. Unitarian Lydia Mariah Child pointed out in 1833, Christianity expressly teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves. This shows how dangerous it is even for the best of us, to become accustomed to what is wrong. So Harper was not alone in being amongst the voices to say, becoming comfortable with injustice is not okay. And as a church, as people of faith, in whatever faith, we must keep returning to that original call and value that we are to be loving one another equally. In our time, Dr. King has called us to be maladjusted. So too does Harper. At this point, the arc of the universe, how are we doing? How is the liberal church doing? And how shall we remain in true to our moment? The work goes on and we cannot adjust and succumb. I bring forth this story about Frances Harper on the last Sunday of Black History Month with an eye towards Women's History Month next month. But we know this is not history. This is the work. And we listen to these people of our past to call us forth into the future, to remind us of what we are keeping. We must keep doing. Harper died in 1911 at the age of 85. Her funeral was at the First Unitarian Church in Philadelphia. 
She offered her gifts, her privilege as an educated antebellum African-American woman to raise the question of race, gender, class, theology, and the vote in one of the most important critical centuries of our human history. We are learning to remember her again, as we did, as they did in 2016, by including her in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Engraved at that museum are the closing thoughts of her poem, Bury Me in a Free Land. I ask no monument, proud and high, to arrest the gaze of passerby. All that my yearning spirit craves is bury me not in a land of slaves. Let us take up this request, this call, and take up our part in the bending of that ark. Amen.